Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Fair Territory. We, of course, will be talking a lot about baseball and the pennant races and the awards races today. But I want to start off by just pausing to remember 9-11. It is 9-11 today. And those of us who were alive on that day, of course, we will never forget it. It was a horrible day. It was a day that just remains etched in my memory. And I hope everyone just takes a moment today just to kind of remember what that was, what it meant, and of course, all the people who were lost. As for baseball, I've got something to start the show today that is going to encapsulate this season better than anything I can even think of before or maybe even since. And that is this. Thursday on Fox, we will not be doing the finale of Yankees-Red Sox. No, we will be doing the first game of the Orioles-Rays series from Camden Yards. That's right, the Orioles and Rays, not the Yankees and Red Sox. And why? Uh, Look at the standings. The Orioles and Rays have the two best records in the American League. The Orioles, in fact, are only three games behind the Braves as of Monday for the best record in baseball. The Braves have been rampaging through the National League all season. Now, what's interesting here is the spread between the clubs right now. The Orioles lead this division by three games. And I had someone with the Rays tell me over the weekend, we've got to get a little closer to really make that series meaningful. At the time, the spread was four games. It's now three. The Orioles, as we will see, host St. Louis for the next three. Tampa Bay at Minnesota. Now, Tampa Bay has the superior run differential by quite a bit. They are plus 195. The Orioles are just plus 118. The Orioles actually behind the Astros in that regard. But the Orioles have played at an extremely high level all season. And in some ways, they are like the Rays. Rarely beat themselves, play excellent defense, run the bases extremely well. Offensively, they're opportunistic. And they are a team that just has done some really good things all season long. Now, the battle of the rotations is where the argument starts, right? The Rays have a big three, even with all the injuries that they've suffered. McClanahan and Rasmussen, everyone on down. They still have Glasnow and Eflin and Savali. But the Orioles' rotation, which to me still is the biggest question of this club, maybe the bullpen too, in some respects now with Bautista out. But the Orioles' rotation has a front three as well. It's Bradish, it's Rodriguez, it's Kramer. Each has made 10 starts since the All-Star break. Each has a sub-3 ERA. And John Means, who was the former ace of this team, the ace when they weren't so good, he's coming back Tuesday night from Tommy John surgery, and he had another issue that set him back in May. Be pitching for the first time since April 2022. And who knows what he could give them down the stretch. Now, the bullpen without Bautista, I mentioned it. It's a bit of a problem. There's no doubt about that. It's not the same. Not as deep, not as dominant. But Yenayu Kano had a tremendous August. Did not allow a single earned run. He's been a little bit rocky in September. And they've got some other relievers pitching well in addition to Kano. Fujinami is kind of a wild card. He's the guy who came over from Oakland in mid-July. He's a bit of hit or miss. But when he's on, and he's been on the last few outings, he is really good and dominant. Two of the lefties, CNL Perez and Danny Coulomb, they've been outstanding as well. Neither has allowed an earned run going back to July. So the Orioles' bullpen might not be the same without Bautista. Obviously, it's not the same. But at the same time, it's still pretty formidable. And I expect that this is going to be a team that 
competes really well until the end of the season and also in the postseason. I know some people with Tampa Bay are thinking, well, how will the Orioles respond to the pressure of a big series coming up? They've responded to the pressure all year. They've applied pressure, and that is what they've continued to do. So let's look at the remaining schedules, and it'll give us some insight into just how this might play out the rest of the way. Start with the Orioles' remaining schedule. And I mentioned that's three with St. Louis, then four with Tampa Bay. That's a seven-game homestand. Then they go to Houston and Cleveland, neither an easy opponent. Then two with Washington, four with Boston to end the season. Tampa Bay, their schedule, about the same, maybe a little bit easier. Go to Minnesota, go to Baltimore, Angels at home, Toronto at home, and then at Boston, at Toronto to finish the season. Actually, it's not easier. It's at least as formidable as the Orioles. So the AL East race will be the focus of baseball, really, starting on Thursday when that series begins. And it has been a remarkable year when you consider, again, that the two best teams in this league have been two of the lower revenue teams, two teams that I don't know that many people expected to be as dominant this year. And the Rays have done this even without, as I said, McClanahan and Rasmussen and now Franco. They were without glass now for some time. Shane Boz was hurt. Jeffrey Springs out for the season. They've had a series of unfortunate events and yet they have survived. Two other big races going on as well right now. Actually, more than that, but we'll focus on two. The AL wildcard and the NL wildcard. Now, let's start with the American League wildcard because we have some clarity here that we've been waiting for really all season. The Astros have kind of taken a commanding lead in the American League West. They're up two and a half games. They've won 10 of 14. Nine of their next 12 are against Oakland and Kansas City. Their odds for winning the division right now, 81.5%. So I'm going to sit here and hand them the division, just for the purposes of discussion. And let's look then at the three teams vying for the two wildcard spots that remain, because Tampa Bay or Baltimore is going to get one of them. You see Tampa Bay right now, playoff odds of 100%. Toronto at 79.2%, Seattle 68.7%, Texas 51.7%. Now... Toronto and Texas begin a critical four-game series in Toronto on Monday night. Texas, let's face it, they're reeling. They've lost 16 of 22. We talked about this last week. They're without Josh Young, who might be coming back shortly, without Adolis Garcia, who we don't know is coming back, and Jonah Heim, since returning from his injury, he has not been the same. So that's three pretty important hitters, three very important hitters, that they don't have either at all or at full strength. It's been a problem for them. Toronto is on a bit of a roll here. They've had a weaker schedule of late, 1-6 of 7, 9 of 14. Bichette is back. Chapman is hopefully coming back soon from his finger injury. This is a team, I equate them a little bit to Seattle because if they get in, they're a problem. They've got starting pitching. Gossman, Barrios, Bassett, Kikuchi, they've been very good. So the Jays, we've kind of been waiting for them all season to take off. Maybe now this is their time. Seattle, I just saw them over the weekend. They won that first game in Tampa Bay, a one nothing game. Great performance. Then they lost the next three. Finished a 3-7 and seven trip to the New York Mets, the Cincinnati Reds, and Tampa Bay. And they've fallen back a little bit. And one of the issues they're having is they've got some young pitching that they're having to kind of pace along here a little bit. 
They had a bullpen game Saturday because they didn't want to push Brian Wu. They moved him back to Tuesday. But Seattle, again, if they get in, they are a tough team. They're a tough opponent. Castillo and Gilbert and Kirby, three formidable starting pitchers. They've got a decent bullpen as well. It's not as strong without Paul Seawall. They've had some hiccups. But I like the Mariners, but they've got to get there. Now, over in the National League, that wild card race is a free-for-all. And let's look at it from the top here. All right, I'm going to say that Philadelphia and Chicago are in. You can see Philadelphia is at 96.2%. The Cubbies are at 85.7%. It's the other four teams that are really interesting here. Arizona Diamondbacks won three of four at Wrigley Field in front of packed houses all weekend. That was an impressive series win by them. And it puts them in, I don't know if I'd say a commanding position, but they're in a good position. And after they play four on the road in New York City against the Mets, they come home for five against two of the other wildcard contenders, the Cubs and the Giants. The reason I like them and have liked them all along here are their top two starters. Zach Gallen and Merrill Kelly both will get Cy Young consideration. Those two guys, to me, give them an edge over the other teams in this race. Not over the Cubs, who of course have Justin Steele and a really good thing going, but I'm talking about the teams behind them. Now the Marlins are in a really interesting spot. They have survived a lot. Lately, they've survived the losses of Sandy Alcantara and Jorge Soler, and they keep going. They are right there in the thick of this thing. Their schedule is not easy. They've got seven left with Milwaukee, three left with Atlanta, as well as six with the Mets, and then they end with the Pirates. They're right there, though, and they have shown a lot of resourcefulness and spunk and just an overall quality that we did not expect from them. Their bullpen's been outstanding. So the Marlins are right there. The Reds, their odds were the lowest, as you might have seen there. They've got a problem with their pitching, and it's young. It's not as experienced. They've had the COVID issues. But they did get Jonathan India and Joey Votto back to their lineup over the weekend. And they have a schedule that is reasonable the rest of the way. Their toughest opponent is the Minnesota Twins. And finally, the Giants. Here's a team that offensively since the All-Star break has not been good. Over the weekend against their annual punching bags, the Rockies, they revived a little bit. But there's been a lot of noise in San Francisco about the futures of Farhan Zaidi as their president of baseball operations. The manager, Gabe Kapler, his team has not exactly endeared itself to its fans. And they're going to have to hit their way and find a way to get there. They've done this with two starting pitchers, Logan Webb and Alex Cobb. They've been bullpenning like crazy. They haven't been hitting much. But maybe now this series against Colorado will revive them. They've got three at home against Cleveland and then a 10-game road trip to Colorado, Arizona, and the Los Angeles Dodgers. So... This NL wildcard race, as I said, a free-for-all. It's going to be exciting right to the end. At this point, I still like the Diamondbacks. So those two races, NL wildcard, AL wildcard, going right down to the wire. And we've got some other races going down to the wire as well. We haven't talked much about the NL and AL Cy Young. A lot of us have focused on the MVP races. Will Otani hold on in the American League? Acuna versus Betts versus Olsen versus Freeman in the National League. But the Cy Young races are quite interesting. And I'll start with the American League because I think that has a little bit more definition right now. I'm a guy who likes innings. 
when I look at the Cy Young races. Now, I know innings are not in vogue right now. Starters pitch five or six innings. That's it. But to me, that is what makes an innings eater even more valuable in this day and age. And in the American League, Garrett Cole has both things going on right now. He's got the best ERA in the league, and he's also got the most innings of any starting pitcher or any pitcher in the league as well. He is the clear front runner. To me, he's a pretty obvious winner right now. You look at Sonny Gray, his ERA is close, innings are not. Castillo is the one that, to me, has probably the best case other than Cole. Innings are up there, ERA nearly as good. Gossman, leader in strikeout rate. Also up there in innings, he's had some bad luck, of course, this season. He is a strong contender as well. And Framber Valdez, he's done some amazing things, but his ERA is more than a half run per nine innings higher than Cole's. I don't see him contending for the top spot, maybe in the top three. Now, the National League is a bit more interesting. And the National League doesn't have an obvious front runner. Jay Jaffe of Fangraphs, a friend of mine, wrote an interesting column over the weekend basically saying this race has no definition. Again, I prefer innings. Steele and Snell. 159 innings for Steele, 161 for Snell. They are the two ERA leaders by quite a bit. Snell won this award with 180 and two-thirds innings in 2018 pitching for the Tampa Bay Rays. He's got about four more starts left. He'll get there. He also has the highest walk percentage in the league, so it's kind of tough to wrap your arms around him. And Steele, he's been brilliant. He might be the front runner right now, but his innings aren't what you can see right there, what Zach Gallons are. And you wonder, is it going to be enough? I believe it will be for one of those two guys. Now, Jay wrote a lot about Strider, Spencer Strider of the Atlanta Braves, 3.83 ERA. That would be the highest for any Cy Young winner in history, 3.83. Now, I know we're in an era of advanced metrics, and Strider has the crazy strikeout numbers, 250 overall, 37% strikeout rate. He also has the biggest gap between expected ERA and actual ERA, indicating that he has been a victim of poor luck to a certain degree. That said, his ERA is more than a run per nine higher than the two leaders here, Steele and Snell, and I'm sorry. I'm all for advanced metrics. I'm all for looking at expected stats, but what matters in a Cy Young race is actual stats. And I am not ready at this stage in the sports evolution to give this award to a guy with such a high ERA, even though his expected numbers and strikeout numbers might be really good. And I love Spencer Strider. We all do, don't get me wrong. But I'm just not ready to go there at this point. So we'll see what happens in the final few weeks. But right now, for me, it's Cole in the American League and Snell versus Steele in the National. Time now for the Inside Dish. This is the part of the show in which I go inside a story I've worked on or written of late or a story developing in the game that I want to take a deeper look at. This week, I'd like to talk about a story I just wrote in conjunction with Will Salmon of The Athletic. The story was entitled, Beyond the Slap, Whatever You Think You Know About Tommy Pham, You Don't. And it was a story that kind of came together in an unusual way. So shortly after the deadline, I'm at City Field, and I'm talking with Mets assistant hitting coach Eric Hinsky. And he mentions to me, we're really going to miss Pham. And I said, really? I mean, they just traded Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander, and he brought up Tommy Pham. Now, I know he's the assistant hitting coach, but that was the guy he mentioned. And he said, guy was an amazing teammate. 
Go ask Lindor about him and he'll tell you. He'll tell you that Tommy Pham taught him how to work harder. So I asked Lindor about that. And he did, in fact, say what Eric Kinski predicted he would say. And I wrote a short item about that for the windup, the Athletics Free Daily Baseball Newsletter. And then a couple of weeks later, I'm talking with the Diamondbacks general manager, Mike Hazen. And I asked him, and this is a question I sometimes will ask of GMs, hey, who's on your team right now that maybe I should be writing about? Who do you think maybe should deserve more attention than he's getting? Right away. Tommy Pham, and he was the one who said, whatever you think you know about Tommy Pham, you don't. So I mentioned this to Will Salmon, who had covered the Mets all season, and Will said, it's funny you mention these conversations, because I was just talking with Buck Showalter the other day, and he informed me that when Pham left the team, he had a meeting with Pham, as a manager normally would with a player who's departing, and the meeting kind of touched him. The meeting was a little bit different, a little bit more emotional than most of those kinds of meetings usually are. So from that point, Will and I kind of put our heads together and said, you know what, let's start asking more people about Tommy Pham. Let's see what we can find out. Let's see if this is a consensus around the game that this guy, though the perception of him is he's the guy who slapped Jock Peterson. He was the guy who was an innocent bystander who was stabbed Outside a nightclub in San Diego, this is the reputation that a lot of fans have of him, the perception that a lot of fans have. Doesn't sound like it's necessarily the accurate perception. So Will and I talked to a dozen people, a dozen people who had played with Tommy Pham, coached him, managed him, and we came up with the story. And the story was mostly about just what the headline said. Whatever you think you know about this guy, you don't. He's a great teammate. He's a tremendous worker. He is a guy who is an extremely serious student of the game. He's always thinking, always working. So we write this story, and the idea was to give the reader insight into a player that he or she might have thought completely differently about. And what I like about it is I didn't know a lot of this, so we're sharing things, Will and I, that we didn't know, and we were confident that many people, many fans didn't know that either. So we publish the story, and the comments flow in. And listen, comments aren't everything. I pay attention to them. I never respond to them or hardly ever respond to them. People are entitled to their opinion. But it surprised me to see that a lot of fans reacted instead of saying, hey, that was kind of interesting. Some did say that, in fairness. But a lot said, nope, he's still a jerk. I think he's a jerk. He slapped Jock Peterson. You know what? Once my son asked him for an autograph and he said no. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Everyone's entitled to their opinion, as I said. But it seems to me, maybe the opinions of people who have competed alongside Tommy Pham should count more than the average fan who's watching on his TV or even at the ballpark. And this is the kind of thing that sometimes frustrates people in my business. When fans, you present them with something, and you're not necessarily trying to change their mind, but you're trying to give them insight, and they still don't see it. Now, subsequent to the publication of that story, I received a long text from another former teammate of FAMS, a guy we did not interview for the story. And he basically said, you guys nailed it. He's one of my favorite teammates ever, and I love him. I'm glad you guys wrote that. Then when I was in Tampa Bay over the weekend, someone with the Rays came up to me and said, you know what, that guy... I love that guy, Tommy Pham. 
He's the only player I keep a baseball card of. So clearly within the game, his reputation is one thing. Outside the game, among certain fans, his reputation might be another. Now, I don't want to get too down on fans for their negative perceptions, negative opinions. It's their absolute right. It's why we love sports. The debate, the opinions, all of that. It's a free country. You're entitled to say whatever you want. And heaven knows, in the age of social media, people will say whatever they want, and often without consequence. But that said, sometimes readers and viewers lose track or lose sight of what our jobs are. Our jobs are to tell you, in a deeper sense, what is going on with a particular player or a team. Could be positive, in the case of Tommy Pham here it was. Could be negative, as it sometimes is when we're covering a team, particularly a struggling team. That's how it works. Now I know there are times when fans will say, when I'm writing negatively about their team, hey man, leave us alone. We know all about it. We don't need to hear anything more from you or anybody like you. Well, sorry, that's not the way it works. And I think back to the Mets this season, and there was a lot written by myself and others earlier in the season when they were collapsing. And the reason it was all written is because this is the biggest fall in Major League history, or the biggest disappointment in Major League history based on payroll. And there was a lot that came with that. And there were trades that were made to hopefully in their minds, set them on the right course. Again, readers and viewers are not going to dictate to me what I write. Really, no one dictates to me what I write. And we are going to follow the stories that we think are the right stories to follow. On the other side of it, when fans look at beat writers and say, hey, why are you writing this about my team or this player? What are you doing? It's not our job to be cheerleaders. It's not how it works. It's our job to tell you what's going on. And at The Athletic, we are more aggressive, I would say, than most outlets in both a positive and negative sense. We cover this sport aggressively. We're going to continue to do that. That is kind of the ethic we've established. And some fans will like it at times, some fans will not like it. But the goal always in the stories that are positive, like the one about Tommy Pham, and in the stories that are negative, the goal always is to tell the reader something he or she doesn't know, to give the reader insight. That's what we do. It's what we're going to continue to do, no matter what you guys say. Time now for Dude and Dork of the Week. Dude, my initial intention was to give it to Jose Altuve. Home runs in four consecutive plate appearances over two games last week. He's had a remarkable resurgence. He is Jose Altuve, one of the best players in the game when healthy. But even though he had this amazing week, I've got to give it to the Atlanta Braves as an organization. The Atlanta Braves are dudes of the week. And the reason is, yes, they've already clinched a postseason berth. That's what's prompting this. But they are also headed for their sixth straight division title. Sixth straight. All under Alex Anthopoulos, since he took over as president of baseball operations, and under manager Brian Snitker, whose first season Full season was at the start of this run. He took over as manager the previous season, but that first division title in this run was his first full season. So the Braves, they have been amazing all season long. They're on pace to set the major league record for home runs in a season. They're fun to watch. They've got starting pitching, the bullpen. Not really star-studded, but good enough for sure. 
they are the dudes of the week because six division titles in a row, and that's coming, that is quite an accomplishment. The Dodgers, of course, had eight in a row at one point from 2013 to 20. Then the year they didn't get the division title, of course, they won 106 games, got beaten out by the Giants, and they've won two division titles since on their way to a third. Great stuff from the Dodgers, no doubt about it. But the Braves, they're kind of showing their dynasty side once again. They're not at the 14 straight like the Glavin, Maddox, Smoltz, Chipper Jones teams. But six straight in this day and age, that would be quite an accomplishment. Dork of the Week. Well, I wrote about this particular organization on Friday and their antics of late. I'm talking about the Washington Nationals. And I'm not going to give their entire organization Dork of the Week. That wouldn't be fair. The players, managers, coaches, actually, they've had a pretty good second half. But the dork of the week is their owner, Mark Lerner. And he's the dork of the week because of the statement he issued Friday about the canceled retirement news conference for Steven Strasburg. You know what had happened here. The Nationals had planned to kind of formally bid farewell to Strasburg, and then they backed out of it. Now, Brick Garoli of The Athletic reported they backed out of it because they thought maybe they could pay him less money when he signed through 2026. But no, his contract is guaranteed. Steven Strasburg has not pitched in quite some time. He's got nerve damage in his arm. He's not going to pitch again. So Mark Lerner releases this statement basically explaining the national side of this. I didn't buy his explanation, but that's beside the point. What really rankled people, myself and of course others who are paying attention, was the last line in which Lerner said, we look forward to seeing Steven in spring training. In other words, we look forward to seeing Steven come and earn his money and rehab in spring training. Steven Strasburg is physically unable to perform. That's the reality here. He's not coming to spring training. He's not going to rehab. He's done. The Nationals have to pay him. They don't have insurance. They have to pay him. That's the way guaranteed contracts work. The Nationals knew this when they signed Strasburg to that seven-year, $245 million deal. And now they've got to pay. So that last line of pettiness, that gets Mark Lerner dork of the week. And for the rest of their saga, you can go back and read my column from Friday because there is more going on with the Nationals. Not renewing scouts, letting people go, all the wonderful things that this organization is involved with right now. But Lerner is dork of the week because of that line. That line alone, that was petty, not right. We're getting close to fall, but it's still hot and sunny everywhere. So protecting your eyes is really important, which is why I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Shady Rays. Shady Rays, they're an independent sunglasses company that has a world-class product just as good as the most expensive sunglasses that are out there. They have durable frames and extremely clear optics for outdoor adventures. But what really separates them is the best protection plan in the industry. If you lose or break your pair, even on day one, they will send you a brand new pair with no questions asked. That's a pretty good deal right there. And if you don't love your Shady Rays, you can exchange them for a new pair or return them within 30 days. So you can buy and wear your Shady Rays with the confidence that they have your back. From building playsets for pediatric cancer patients to providing young adults with MS, the outdoor adventure of a lifetime, Shady Rays is helping communities all over the place. Now, Shady Rays are giving out their best deal of the season. Go to ShadyRays.com and use code F-O-U-L 
for 50% off two plus pairs of polarized sunglasses. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 250,000 people. All right, time now for Grilling Ken. Let's get right to your questions. And the first one is a doozy from Stephen Caswell. And Stephen asks, who next season has a better chance of competing, the Red Sox or the Yankees? Now, I wish I could put on my crystal ball here or look into my crystal ball, I should say, and give you an exact answer. I would say off the top of my head, the Red Sox perhaps stand a better chance of competing. And I'm going to qualify everything here because we don't know what's going to happen in the offseason with these teams, right? But the Red Sox have a core that has emerged this season, a younger core. And we're seeing actually some other players, youngsters, come up in September and do some good things for them as well. Now, the Yankees are doing the same kind of thing, and we've seen that. Unfortunately, the injury to Jason Dominguez kind of changes that perspective a little bit. But I sort of like where the Red Sox are. Offensively, they're fine. Defensively, they've got a lot to clean up. Run prevention is not good. And watching them can be painful, running the bases as well. But I like what they're building. They need to supplement, obviously. They need to fix the rotation and at least decide on which pitchers are going to be part of that, which ones they believe will be healthy. The Yankees, yeah, they have the same kind of outlook, perhaps, with their younger players. But I'm still not happy with the older collection, Stanton, LeMahieu, Rizzo, Rizzo less so from a critical standpoint, but they're still kind of a plodding team. And I know you can say the same about the Red Sox, but the Yankees have a lot of work to do, man. And they've got some things to figure out overall with their organization. So I'll lean toward the Red Sox a little bit, but it really all depends for both teams on the offseason and what they decide to do. Next question comes from Michael, Mike underscore Jays fan, who says, what's the feedback been like from MLB players and execs on the more balanced schedule? Michael, I like the question. And what's interesting is I haven't heard much about this in terms of feedback, in terms of negative or positive reinforcement about the new schedule. That would suggest to me that it's fine, that the players, the coaches, the managers, the executives are not unhappy with it. When those people are unhappy with a rule change or something different in the game, they invariably let people like myself know. So the balanced schedule, or the more balanced schedule, we should say, I would think it has been a success in the eyes of most. It's changed travel a little bit for certain teams, but it's going to balance out the way MLB has it planned. And the idea of each fan base getting to see each team every other year at minimum that's a healthy thing for the sport. It's a good thing when a fan in Pittsburgh knows he will see a player like Shohei Otani come back. Now, Otani, of course, might not be with the Angels next season, but that fan in Pittsburgh is going to see Otani once every other year. That's pretty good. I want to thank everyone for their questions. I want to thank everyone for listening, for watching. You know where to find us by now. YouTube, Apple, Spotify, subscribe, like, whatever you want to do. We'll be back next Monday. Have a great week, everyone. Download the BetMGM Sports app on iOS or Android or visit BetMGM.com. Use the bonus code FOUL. Sign up and deposit at least 10 bucks into your BetMGM Sportsbook account and place your first wager and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if that bet loses. If it loses, your bonus bets will be available once your wager is settled. Gambling problem or concern, call 1-800-GAMBLER.